0: You're listening to Ludophilia, a storytelling and interview podcast about how and why we play. My name is Richard Moss, and in this episode, I talk to film and TV producer Brian Volkweis.
1: You know, I never it was sitting there in high school or college saying, one day I'm going to get out to Hollywood and I'm going to make a show about toys. You know, I never did that.
0: Brian is the driving force behind Netflix documentary series The Toys That Made Us, soon to enter its third season, which delves into the business decisions and creative sparks that drove the creation of some of the most popular toy franchises in the world. And here, in this interview, we talk about the hidden world behind toys and pop culture, the critical quality of a successful toy, why failure is interesting the way your past dreams and passions have a way of shaping your future, and much more. Now, I'll get this out of the way right at the beginning. I love the toys that made us. Some of you will remember how I complained in the Singapore at Play episode of Ludophilia about how the Mint Museum of Toys failed to provide a meaningful connection between toys as objects and toys as cultural and historical artefacts. And I bring that up here. Because in The Toys That Made Us, I think that you have an example of one of the ways that it can be done right. The show perfectly toes the line between irreverence and adulation. It calls out the crap and pokes fun at the toys it covers, while at the same time celebrating the achievements of toy makers, accepting that toys can be fun for all ages, and respecting that every toy is the result of human labour. And the stories of human labour behind these toys are utterly fascinating. It's amazing to learn how Barbie evolved out of a German adult toy design, a doll based on a fictional prostitute, or how with Transformers, Hasbro, with the help of Marvel, which we'll touch on later, managed to unify several distinct... Fairly unpopular Japanese transforming toy lines into one mega successful toy and animation franchise, or how Star Wars and Star Trek toy lines became so intrinsically tied to the toy industry's history. And perhaps my favourite part of all is the playfulness of the show itself, the way that every episode combines its insightful interviews and voiceover narration with a lighthearted tone and fun editing style. They take single words and sighs and other short b-roll clips from interviews and scatter them through each episode, in a way creating a kind of humorous dialogue between narrator, audience and interviewees. All edited just right to make it seem like everybody is reacting to everybody else, like you're all somehow in the same room. It's kind of hard to describe, but super fun to watch. And I'd say this is one of the great triumphs of The Toys That Made Us. Toys are instruments of play. They're objects that pique our curiosity and spark our imagination and enable elaborate role play and provoke our nostalgia. And to capture that same vibe in a show about the history of toys, to make me feel these things even for toys I'd never cared about nor deigned to so much as look at, I think that's a great achievement. But The Toys That Made Us was almost a very different show, with none of the playfulness that I'm describing here. Brian actually spent years trying to sell another version of his concept to the likes of the History Channel and National Geographic. I'm curious, how much did things change from your original seed of an idea to what uh, Netflix accepted?
1: Several things changed. First of all, the original name of the show was The Toys That Made America. So that was a very History Channel-type name. They had a show on at the time called The Men That Make America. So the History Channel version was, uh, I mean, way more American. Like, there would have not been a uh, Hello Kitty episode. There would have not even been a Barbie episode. There probably would not have been a Star Trek episode of that version. That version would have been much more uh, focused on, like, like if you watch the G.I. Joe episode, it's really focused primarily on the 80s, the one we made for Netflix. But if we had made that same episode for Netflix, it probably would have been focused on the 50s and 60s.
0: In case it's not obvious, he meant to say if we had made that same episode for the History Channel.
1: So that was a big difference. You know, one of the things that Netflix told us, we had to make a tape to get Netflix to buy the show. And the advice that I was given before I made the tape was the perfect show from Netflix's point of view, was that 70s show. And the reason it was so perfect for them was it hit all quadrants of the audience. People that had been alive in the 70s and remembered the 70s would watch the show because it gave them nostalgia. But young people would watch the show because the cast was young and attractive. So that was the advice Netflix gave me when I made the tape, and the show was directly made on the tape.
0: That advice drastically changed the tone and the style of the show.
1: I produce a lot of stand-up comedy, and Netflix knew me as a comedy producer. And part of them bringing up that 70s show was also to make the point that they wanted... They didn't want a dry, history-channel show. Like, they wanted a fun, enjoyable show that, you know, had a lot of, uh, you know, joy. That was the other thing Netflix kept stressing to me. Joy, joy, joy. We want our shows to give the audience joy.
0: Inform, inspire, and entertain. That's pretty much the makeup of a perfect documentary. And for me, they've pulled it off. Although, honestly, I probably would have loved the hypothetical History Channel version of the show, too. Anyway, the other key idea going into production was to make sure that every toy line covered in the show met one simple criteria.
1: We really focused every episode on toys that had been around for at least 40 years, but none of the toys we covered uh, had been out of production. So, like, Barbie had been in production for 50 years, Hot Wheels for 50 years, yada, 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 G.I. Joe for 70 years.
0: I didn't bother asking Brian why they did this, because he'd actually explained in a prior interview with Inverse that it was all about picking toy lines that were iconic. Toys that have a big fan base, are instantly recognisable around the world, and that, owing to their constant production rounds, will have at least a passing familiarity to people of all ages. Once again, hitting all the quadrants like with that 70 show. The Toys That Made Us was a surprise hit. It blew away all of Brian's expectations, for sure. And Netflix was delighted with the numbers, too. They ordered another season, which was completed about a week and a half before I spoke to Brian, and is slated for release sometime later this year. Brian thinks the key reason why the show has been able to thrive is timing. A documentary series about the stories behind a bunch of toys is a super nerdy, ultra geeky thing. But whereas when he grew up in the 1980s, and to an extent still when I was growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, the geeks and the nerds were looked down upon by the mainstream. Today, the mainstream itself is geeky. You've got fantasy shows like Game of Thrones and superhero and sci-fi films and TV and comics dominating popular culture discourse, with a smattering of video game lore chucked in there too. And even reality TV is getting in on it now. Here in Australia, we just recently had a hit primetime reality series called Lego Masters, adapted from a UK show of the same name, where cast members competed to build stuff with Lego. Suddenly being super into these geeky things is cool, it's in vogue, and it's something people wear loudly and proudly. And so a show about the origins of Transformers and the Lego and Hello Kitty and the toy adaptations of Star Wars and Star Trek… and so on… it's actually kind of trendy. Brian credits the shift to Marvel's seemingly endless parade over the past decade and a bit, of films based on characters from its comic books.
1: I I think those films, starting with Iron Man, really took what was almost an embarrassing thing for a lot of people, borderline me included, and kicked it out to the, the mainstream.
0: Especially the Avengers series. And remember the latest one, Avengers Endgame broke multiple box office records, and is currently the worldwide second-highest-grossing film of all time on theatrical revenue, not counting for inflation adjustments, despite being a horrifying three hours long. So this stuff is now as mainstream as you get, which is weird if you roll back the clock to before the Marvel movies came out.
1: It, It really was not cool to be a geek and then all of a sudden about five years ago you started seeing all these people being like oh I'm a geek I'm a nerd I'm a geek I love you know you'd hear people be like oh I like Batman I like Superman I like Han Solo you know you'd hear that every now and then 10 years ago but like starting five years ago and now a year ago a month ago you're starting to hear like oh I love the you know the Green Hornet Oh, I like these like eighth string characters. No one knew who Nebula was. Uh, Like nobody. And now you see girls and guys walking around with Nebula t-shirts. So I, I give a lot of credit to Marvel that they have made mainstream what once was like a geeky weird thing that weirdos did. Like when I was in high school. Like I was weird for being into Star Trek the way I was.
0: And speaking of Marvel, one of the things Brian learned while working on the toys that made us was that the company had a surprising closeness to his personal history. I was
1: shocked with how much of the creative development of the toys I grew up with, including the aforementioned Optimus Prime, Hasbro like outsourced the creative to Marvel. So, like, till I made this show, I had no idea that Marvel picked the names and told all the stories and came up with the characters. I always assumed that was Hasbro.
0: What do you love about toys and pop culture?
1: You know, for me, uh, and just speaking for myself as it relates to toys, uh, the toys were a very, very, very important part of my childhood. And you know, I, I I just I don't want to come across wrong. I, I did not, by any stretch of the imagination, have a bad childhood. I, I had a fine, uh, I would argue, somewhat normal childhood. But the the toys that were in my childhood were very very important, and they just uh, they just gave me uh, it was like a device to. I grew up, you know, in a small little uh, semi-attached apartment in in Queens, New York, and Star Wars toys allowed me to fly a spaceship, the Legos allowed me to build skyscrapers, and uh, because there were no Star Trek toys back then, to a certain degree, uh, a lot of my first enterprises were made of Legos, Uh, Transformers, I mean, Optimus Prime. You know, (laughs) Optimus Prime, to say the cliched, uh, you know, was a borderline father figure, uh, as was Captain Kirk. You know, I didn't set out to become a toy collector. I didn't set out to make a TV show about toys. You know, I never was sitting there in high school or college saying, one day I'm going to get out to Hollywood and I'm going to make a show about toys. You know, I never did that. But what happened was I was in college and I used to be into comic books quite a bit. And there was a comic book store that also sold vintage toys. And I just remember one day being in this comic book shop and I saw a Kenner atst uh, That's the Chicken Walker, the, the Adat with two legs. I don't know your Star Wars knowledge. And uh, I just remember being like, I wanted that as a kid. I didn't get it. It's $19. I have that money. And it was the first toy that I bought knowing I wouldn't play with it. Like, I think I was a junior in college, and I I don't think I'd bought a toy in five or six years at that point. And I just remember how much I loved seeing it on my shelf. And then because I loved seeing it on my shelf so much, I bought another and another and another and another. And now I have. Uh, Too many toys.
0: In a similar fashion, Brian found his pathway into making a different documentary series, Discontinued, through rediscovering his youth. Discontinued is about all sorts of pop culture things that didn't stand the test of time. Toys and games and foods and even companies like Blockbuster Video, which for anyone too young to remember, was a huge video rental franchise from back in the days of VHS tapes and lasting well into the era of DVDs that failed to adapt to market changes and got outmaneuvered by smaller, savvier rivals like Netflix.
1: It's a fun show, and it's a very simple premise. Uh, I am fascinated with, I always have been, failure, especially business failure. And it's a very cheery, happy look at failure because we are basically looking at products companies, sometimes even people of that have gone away. And usually, success and failure is a minuscule decision that goes the right way or the wrong way. Uh, Blockbuster could have bought Netflix for $5 million. Even if they spent $5 million and shut it down, they didn't even have to do what Netflix was doing. They didn't even have to eventually get into original programming. All they had to do was pay $5 million, and boom, I guarantee you Blockbuster would still exist. Uh, uh, Splenda was on the verge of bankruptcy. It was owned by Dow Corning. It was like a side effect of another product. They were begging Sweet & Low to buy it, I believe, for $3 million just so they could cover their development costs. And Sweet and & Low was basically out of business. So it's all these stories that, in a fun way, I mean, it is totally told in a fun way with a lot of comedy and a lot of humor. You know, what, why did uh, Hummer go out of business? Why did the uh, Taco Bell dog go away?
0: If you, like me, when I conducted this interview, don't really understand what Brian's talking about when he mentions Splendor and Sweet and Low and the Taco Bell dog, Here's a quick rundown from what I read online. Splenda is an artificial sweetener, a sugar substitute based on the chemical compound sucralose. Sweet'n Low is a rival brand of artificial sweetener that's based on sodium saccharin. Sweet'n Low was once the US market leader, but now it's a small player compared to the dominant Splenda. The Taco Bell dog, meanwhile, was a chihuahua called Gidget, that was used as an advertising mascot by the Mexican food-inspired fast food chain from September 1997 until July 2000. Whereupon they moved on to different types of ads and she moved on to other things like insurance ads and movie cameos. Gidget died in 2009, aged 15.
1: Like, again, I I, I never considered myself a, a pop culture person or anything like that. It's just... I, and I, I, I'm all but positive this is true of any and every generation. You know, if you're in your 20s, in the 40s, and then in the 1970s, of course you're going to be nostalgic for the 40s. I, I think that's human nature, and I think it's always worked like that. The difference now is that in the 1970s, there really wouldn't be t shirts to buy of stuff that was famous in the 40s, the way now there are things in 2019 that I would buy that remind me and people who know what it is on the t-shirt of the 1980s. So again, I didn't set out to be like, hey, I'm a pop culture genius or I'm a pop culture historian. I just was into stuff in the 80s and 90s that I'm still into. And because of the internet, allowing i think generations of culture to be pulled forward easier than ever before pop culture became a thing right around the same time that the toys that made us came out and because of how well toys that made us uh, was received god you know thank god and i mean it's amazing to me i still can't get used to the reception it's received i Really, just, I'm kind of, it's so funny, there's that, not not my favorite movie in the world, but there's this uh, Tom Hanks movie called The Thing You Do. And I wasn't a fan of the movie, but there was a tagline on the poster that was, sooner or later, the dream you dream becomes the thing that you do. And that's sort of what happened to me, where it was like stuff that I was just doing anyway like, all of a sudden, society got excited
0: about. So I was really lucky. It's a little bit like that for me, too, come to think of it, where uh, my day job, uh, in large part, involves writing about video games and, like, video game history. And it wasn't wasn't something that I really set out to do. It's just something I was interested in, that uh, these opportunities came up and it gradually became my job.
1: It's the best. I mean, nothing better than having a hobby become the way you make money. I mean, nothing, nothing better.
0: You've touched a, a, a fair bit there on um, how some of your geeky interests have uh, intersected with your career. Do you see like a, any kind of through line where your hobbies and interests have like, just controlled where your career has gone?
1: Yes, I, I think it's ultimately luckily ended up that way. It didn't start that way. I sold and I produced a lot of shows that I believed had a high degree of selling and also uh, doing well, but they were not based on my passions. Uh, Now, having produced a lot of shows and having, to some degree, a reputation within the show business community here, you know, now... I feel like I'm afforded the luxury of only producing shows that I'm passionate about. So, I mean, less than a year ago, uh, a network called me and asked me to produce a show that they were doing anyway, and they needed a producer because they had fired somebody. And I turned it down because I just wasn't excited about it. And I didn't think I could do a good job. Had that same phone call come in a year earlier, let alone three or five years earlier, it would have been one of the greatest days of my life. You know, I got three kids, I got a wife, I got a house. So turning down work and turning down money, you know, A, it's scary, but B, it's a real privilege uh, to be able to say, I just want to focus on my hobbies and entertain the world with stuff that I care about.
0: And that, again, comes back to the ever-evolving entertainment landscape. The way that these geeky things are inexplicably popular all of a sudden. And also the wealth of money to burn that video streaming and cable TV rivals are investing in original content for their services, which together seem to have formed this sort of perfect storm for people like Brian to do cool niche stuff and find a passionate audience with it. It helps that The Toys That Made Us is really, really good, and that's credit to the whole team that worked on it. Particularly, I'd venture the editors who made it so fun to watch, the researchers who managed to track down so many interesting people who have great stories to tell, and Brian himself, for his overall direction, but also with his drive to learn everything he can about these toys and the companies that made them. Brian explained to me his special trick for getting deep under the surface of a company's history.
1: Because of my job running my own company and also dealing with a lot of corporations, I have been aware for a long time of the value of finding and especially interviewing the lawyers. So lawyers at a company are really the only job classification at a company that sees everything. Lawyers see the money, they see the problems, they have access to the creative, but they also have access to all the personalities. So as soon as I, you know, any show I've ever done, I'm always, not every show, but for the last 10 years or so, I always try and find the lawyers. So in this show in particular, that mantra that I've used for years, that is where we found people and learned stuff unprecedented in a lot of these toys' histories. But the beauty about finding lawyers, especially even even if they don't go on camera, is sometimes the lawyers will say to you, oh, I'm not going on camera, but you should talk to John Doe and Jane Doe they'll probably go on camera and they'll tell you the stuff I won't tell you, because I was the lawyer.
0: And occasionally, as in the Star Wars episode, the lawyer even agrees to talk on camera. Although Brian notes that Jim Kipling, the lawyer from the Star Wars toy maker Kenner Products, was more than a little hesitant.
1: And to be honest with you, we were terrified he wasn't going to show up. He was super cagey on the phone and uh, we scheduled him for our last interview. And I mean, it was just all like, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't believe he showed up. And not only did he show up, he showed up with the contract uh, under his arm in a binder.
0: Lucky for Brian and his team and for us viewers. Because Jim then proceeded to deliver some of the best stories and off-the-cuff remarks in the show's run so far. Like, for instance, how the revenue-sharing deal Kenner made with Lucasfilm on Star Wars Toys a deal that was brilliant for Kenner, but absolutely horrendous for Lucasfilm, would extend intergalactically in perpetuity. In other parts of the show, conflict creeps in, sometimes in the history itself, with egos and opinions and multi-million dollar budgets colliding to cause disagreements about how a toy should be designed or named or launched or whatever. But sometimes the conflict is in the remembering of the history. And this is where Brian and the team benefit from their use of pre-interviews via Skype in the weeks and months before they head out to meet these people with a film crew.
1: Over the course of six weeks or so, we've already done all these interviews simultaneously, so we know John Doe is saying something that conflicts with Jane Doe. Jane Doe is saying something that agrees with Steve Doe but, so we know by the time we get on an airplane and set up cameras and do the actual interview, we know to ask the question but then when they give us the answer we already know we're going to get because we pre-interviewed them. We know because of the other pre-interviews to be able to say so that's interesting because Jane Doe said and then we can get It helps us get closer to the truth. But what also sometimes happens is John Doe and Jane Doe are like, listen, John Doe will be like, listen, I respect Jane Doe. I think she's great, but she's wrong. And Jane Doe will be like, well, I respect John Doe. I love the guy, but he's wrong. And we'll put that in the show because that's life. Sometimes people have different versions of the same story, especially when you're talking about stuff that went down 50 years ago or 30 years ago.
0: I figured that after working on a dozen episodes of the show, eight of which have been released so far, Brian must have had some strong insights into the way the toy business works. So I asked him what he's learnt about it, and he responded by telling me a little story, to illustrate just how incredibly, almost randomly fragile and delicate this business of making and selling toys can be
1: can't talk too much about this because stuff is already in motion but god willing at some point netflix says to me we're going to green light one more season and this is it and you can do whatever you want netflix has always let me pick the episode so that's been awesome of them too so my hope is they're going to say to me you can make four more do whatever you want because the last episode i would make would be the bookend to the first episode, which was Star Wars. And this episode would be the toys that should have not been made. And the central toy of that episode will be LJN's Dune line based on the David Lynch movie from the early 80s. Because if you see what LJN did with Dune, it is identical to what Kenner did with Star Wars. And the only difference is Kenner was right and LJN was wrong. And LJN went out of business partly because of it. That movie destroyed David Lynch's career for 10 years. Everybody associated with that movie either was severely damaged or permanently bankrupt and destroyed. And you need to watch that episode and then watch the Star Wars episode again. The, the amount of failure in the toy business is I mean, is astronomical and everybody always points to He-Man as the example of, of the highs and lows, but uh, something I find fascinating on a similar note is G.I. Joe in that basically Hasbro has tried to reorganize and relaunch G.I. Joe at least 10 to 12 times and it only worked once. The first time it came out, it worked, but as it relates to bringing it back, it really only worked once in the, you know, the 1981 line. Every other time it worked for a year or two and then went away. So, and that's for a household name toy. Like my wife who doesn't know anything about toys knows the name uh, Snake Eyes or Cobra Commander or Scarlet. So... Here you have a household name brand, one of the most successful toys of all time, and they could only get it going once after it already worked. So it is a very fragile, very delicate business. And on top of that, it's a very expensive business. It's like Coca-Cola tries a new soda at the end of the day, within reason. It was just different kinds of sugars and and colors and water. You know, For a toy company, especially now with motion sensors and everything and and lights and movement, it was a staggering expensive upfront cost to have a toy sale. So uh, that was the thing that blew my mind.
0: One more uh, thing regarding lessons from the show. Do you uh, have a handle now on what makes a toy good or memorable?
1: I think that for a toy to work, It has to have some degree of world building combined with it being aspirational. And that's such an artsy-fartsy word. So another way to say aspirational is to some degree, that character, that figure needs to be doing something that you don't or can't. So, But it, it really needs to be connected to a bigger world. The same way that Barbie had a thousand outfits and friends, G.I. Joe had a thousand guns and a thousand colleagues and a thousand enemies and a thousand vehicles. I don't think G.I. Joe would have worked without the vehicles. I don't think Transformers would have worked, you know, without the, uh, the, the transforming, of course, which was a puzzle. But Optimus Prime is nothing without Megatron. And Megatron and Optimus Prime are nothing without Cybertron. And Cybertron, Megatron, and Optimus Prime need Earth to give all three context. So, by the way, I just have to tell you, there's one exception to all these rules, and that's Hello Kitty. Like, Sanrio and Hello Kitty are in a world all by themselves where none of the normal rules uh, work, uh, the people that work at Sanrio, I would argue, they don't even know why it works. Uh, it is the most baffling. Uh, I could literally make a two-hour documentary called "The Making of the Hello Kitty Episode." Uh, that borderline, you wouldn't even believe me if I told you how bizarre that experience was. Uh, but that's that's for another time. But yeah, so that's that's what I think it takes, and you you just you have to create an environment that is all encompassing so the little piece of plastic in your hand and the little pieces of plastic in the in the box they exist somewhere else that you can use your hands and your imagination to put them in and tell stories in your own mind it can't just be a piece of plastic and that's why marvel was so important to those toys
0: next up in season 3 Brian says the toys that made us will be digging into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, My Little Pony, Power Rangers, and wrestling.
1: It's the exact same DNA uh, that we put into the first two seasons. Uh, Almost the entire crew came back, and, uh, and they're great stories. I mean, they're amazing stories. We recently screened the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles episode for the number one turtles expert out there. And he, there was like three things in it he didn't even know uh, and he loved the episode and he literally was crying uh, when it ended, so, literally like tears coming down his cheeks crying. So, I, I feel very good about it. I hope people like it, you never know. You never know.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> you're making that dude cry, that's a, that's a good sign.
1: It is a good sign, that is true, but uh, I've, I've, I've been doing this long enough to know Uh, total reviews come in, uh, uh, you know, keep your mouth shut and your head down.
0: To round out this episode, as I did with the interview itself, I want to hop across to what has long been Brian's real bread and butter. He is a comedy producer. He got into it initially as a talent manager more than 15 years ago, then within a couple of years was promoted into a production role. And in 2008, after around five years of doing that, he founded his own production and distribution company, which he still runs to this day. They're called Comedy Dynamics. And their credits of DVD and Netflix, Hulu, Apple et al comedy specials read like a who's who of the American stand-up comedy circuit. You've got Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, Craig Ferguson, Bob Saget, Sarah Silverman, Jerry Seinfeld, Aziz Ansari... Uh, Miranda Sings and lots of other famous funny men and women, as well as some not-so-famous up-and-coming comedians, because they don't want to only deal with the big guns. They want to help lift up the stars of tomorrow, too. With credits like this, and, and with the enthusiasm that he speaks about comedy, his passion for the medium is obvious. But I wanted to know why. To me, it's an art form
1: that I feel very privileged and lucky. It was complete luck that I got involved with it as early as I did. And it's evolved, I don't know, in Australia, but in the U.S. I mean, it went from being a little niche in the comedy space to being its own complete standalone genre. It's still blowing up. And I... I mean, I I feel about stand-up comedy the way people feel about, uh, you know, hearing the same Mozart concerto by 10 different symphonies, even though the notes don't change. Just the way different conductors and musicians perform it, it's a completely different song. Now, all comedians tell different jokes, but it's still all stand-up. So, you know, in a... I admit, freely, artsy-fartsy way, uh, if I am to be considered a connoisseur of stand-up comedy, I mean, I'm a connoisseur in that I've consumed so much. I think I can see the context and the patterns within the genre. I'm just fascinated by it. I I love it. I'm constantly looking for a human being to find a different way to make people laugh. My favorite part of what I do is find someone who's never done a special and give them their first special and be a part of that. And it's the greatest thing ever. The other thing which is wonderful about it compared to everything else I do is it's a very self-contained process. So there's usually 99.9% of the time a human being with a microphone. And that's it. So rather than making a TV show, you know, I'm producing the uh, the resurgence or the next season or whatever you want to call it of Mad About You. You know, that's hundreds of people to make that, and you needed Paul Reiser and you needed Helen Hunt. So this is, uh, you know, this is just simple. It's just a human being and a microphone, and God willing, I took the lens caps off the cameras.
0: Glutophilia is produced by me, Richard Moss. Music, editing, interviews, mixing and all. If you'd like to see some of Brian's work, you can watch The Toys That Made Us on Netflix. First two seasons available now, third season on its way later this year. Discontinued was aired on The CW in the US, and its pilot episode is also available on Amazon Prime. I believe that's everywhere. Uh, The pilot's definitely available here in Australia. I believe the rest of its debut season will hit prime early next year. Uh, Meanwhile, if you're into comedy, most of Brian's comedy specials are on Netflix, but I'm sure there are some on the other streaming services too. And you can learn more about his work in the TV comedy business at his company's website, comedydynamics.com. I'll put some relevant links in the show notes too to find out more, but you can always find along with all the past episodes, at ludophilia.net. I'm trying very hard to get Ludophilia back up to a a once-a-month schedule, but in the meantime, if you'd like to give me a bit of encouragement, you can help me out by leaving a review, or hitting the recommend button in your favourite podcast app, by sharing your favourite episodes on social media, by listening with the Radio Public app, or by making a small donation either a one-time donation via paypal.me slash mossrc or a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash ludophilia, which comes with access to the episode transcripts as a a bonus thing, just to say thanks for for your support. So I'll do my best to be back with a new episode in July, or I hope no later than early August, and until then, I want to wish you all a great week and a great month. The show's motto is to play, live, love and learn. And I hope you all get to do a lot of these. Until next time, my name is Richard Moss and this was Ludophilia. Thanks for listening. See ya.